Hello and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Over the coming weeks we hope to explore some of the thousands of reported cases of reincarnation and bring the discussion out into the light so that we can explore the possibility of what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Today we discuss the fascinating case of Barbara O'Carlin and Anna Frank. Anna's name is often pronounced Anne Frank, but her full name was actually Annalise, and in Europe it would be pronounced Anna. So out of respect, I'll try and use the traditional pronunciation of her name. But forgive me if I slip now and then as I grew up thinking of her as Anne. Barbara's book, And the Wolves Howled, can be found on Amazon.com, as indeed can Anna Frank's own book, Anna Frank, Diary of a Young Girl. Our trip back in time this week lands us in the dark days of World War II, in the pre-war days of late 30s Europe. In 1938 and 1939, the world was watching Germany with a growing unease, as Adolf Hitler, a rather nondescript plain little man, was appointed Chancellor of the Reich in Germany and started to rally his country to war. Germany had started the First World War, and when they lost, there was a lingering resentment in Germany at the terms they were forced to accept. Hitler used this unrest to gain power, promising the German people a golden era, with space for the German people to expand beyond their borders and wealth for all. He had a dream of a pure or Aryan nation, and in his dream of a race of strong, able-bodied, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Germans, there was no room for anyone who didn't fit his vision. In the mid-30s, he started secretly rearming Germany, signed alliances with Italy and Japan against the Soviet Union, and in 1938, he sent troops to occupy Austria, annexing Czechoslovakia the following year. His aggressive tactics went unchecked, as the United States and Soviet Union were involved in their own internal politics at the time, and France and Great Britain, who had suffered greatly under the last Great War, were struggling to survive themselves. In Britain, the gap between the wealthy and the poor was widened further than it had ever been. Half the country was starving. There was massive unemployment and no jobs available with no health care scheme. People who were unable to pay their rent were means-tested and their furniture and possessions were taken from them. It was a time of desperation and great struggle and neither France nor Britain were keen to re-engage once again in another war with their old enemy. But Hitler was a driven man. In late 1939, he signed a non-aggression pact with the Russian dictator Stalin and his eye was casting greedily towards Poland, a country that both Great Britain and France had guaranteed military support to if Hitler invaded. The non-aggression pact meant that Hitler did not have to face the possibility of fighting war on two fronts if he invaded Poland. England and France could see themselves being dragged back into the conflict again and there was consternation in both countries as they recognised the direction Hitler's manoeuvring was taking. In Amsterdam, the Dutch were hoping to avoid being pulled into the brewing threat of war by trying to maintain their neutrality. This had worked well for them in World War I, and the First War had passed them by. But this time, Hitler had his eye on conquering France, and he planned to do it by invading Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, catching them off guard in an attack called the Blitzkrieg, so that they could bypass the French defence line. Posing as tourists, German officers mapped out the area, 
and gained information from Germans living in the Netherlands. And eventually, after being delayed by bad weather, the German forces managed to successfully invade on the 10th of May 1940. Life in Nazi-occupied Amsterdam was as bad as it was everywhere else under Nazi rule. Thousands fled, some out of fear of the war and others out of fear of the Nazis and the way they treated those they considered to be enemies of the state. Evelyn and Otto Frank, Anna's Jewish parents, had already moved from Germany to the Netherlands as Otto Frank had been given the offer to start a new business in Amsterdam and to move further away from the growing threat in Germany. The family settled in Mervederplan and were still there when the Nazis invaded the Netherlands. Hitler's hatred of the Jews was documented as early as 1923 in his propaganda tract Mein Kampf, which translates to My Struggle. Hitler freely predicted that there would be a general European war that would result in the extermination of the Jewish race in Germany, which of course would also be embraced by any country that Germany invaded. Anne wrote in her diary, Jews have to wear a Jewish star. Jews have to hand in their bicycles. Jews are not allowed in the tram. Jews are not allowed to ride in cars. Jews must attend Jewish schools, and so on and so forth. Things came to a head for the family in the summer of 1942, when Margot was ordered to attend a so-called labour camp, which was in reality a concentration camp. The family went into hiding behind Otto's business on the Prinzenkracht. The family hid there with the Van Pels family and a young man by the name of Fritz Pfeffer. During the time of her confinement, Anne found freedom by writing in the diary she'd received as a birthday present about her life. All eight people hid in the cramped quarters for two years before being captured on the 4th of August 1944 and taken initially to Auschwitz and from there to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. In February 1945, Anne and Margot died of typhus at Bergen-Belsen in terrible conditions. Only Anne's father, Otto, survived the war, her mother dying from starvation on the 6th of January 1945 at Auschwitz, three weeks before the Red Army liberated the camp and ten days before her 45th birthday. Her daughters outlived her by one month. Nine years later, in Sweden, a child by the name of Barbro Carlin was born. From the age of two years old, Barbara had traumatic nightmares of being a small, terrified girl drenched in sweat, listening to the sound of shouted orders and heavy boots running up wooden stairs towards her. She would hear dogs barking and with a crash the door would be kicked in. She would wake with tears streaming down her face, disorientated and still buried in the dream. Barbara's parents were very traditional Christian people who did not believe in reincarnation. As soon as she could talk, Barbara started telling her mother that she was not Barbara. Her name was Anna. Her mother, not really understanding what Barbara was trying to tell her, put down Barbara's statements to a lively imagination. Barbara herself felt confused and conflicted as she tried to understand this feeling she had of living in two worlds at the same time. She knew her name was Anna Frank. But these people in her life now insisted on calling her Barbara and made it clear that she was to call them Mum and Pa, even though Barbara knew that they were not her real parents. 
It was a very difficult and confusing time for the little girl and there was no one she could talk to about what she was remembering and how she was feeling. Barbara's parents were good parents and they were very loving and caring but this was outside the range of their experience. Not knowing how to deal with Barbara's claims they opted to ignore it. When Barbara spoke about it they would just hush her and shut her down when she was trying to talk about it, trying to silence her from speaking about her memories. Despite her resistance, Barbara insisted that her name was Anna and that her father would soon come and get her and then she would leave them. Finally, when Barbara was around six years of age, her mother, overcome with worry, took Barbara to a psychiatrist because she thought that Barbara had a psychiatric issue. By this time, having observed the reaction of adults to her statements, Barbara realised that she couldn't speak about her experiences because everyone became so tense and uncomfortable. By the time she was taken to the psychiatrist, she realised that he, as another adult, would not believe her either, so she didn't say anything about being Anna Frank and instead behaved like a normal six-year-old happy girl. The psychiatrist informed her mother that Barbara was perfectly normal and that she shouldn't worry about it. The little girl would grow out of this fantasy in time. However, Barbara never did. As we've mentioned before, most children begin to lose their memories of their past life at around the age of six, but some people retain the memory into their adult years. Barbara kept her memories until well into her teens, and she lived with them in silence, still feeling unable to speak about it. At seven years old, Barbara went to school and learned how to read and write. Finally, the young girl found relief because now she could write about her experiences and tell the pages everything she couldn't tell the people around her. So she would write it out and then throw it away as soon as she'd written it. I have to say that is such a poignant image to me of a little girl being so affected by those memories but being so afraid of people reading about it because of the negative reaction she knew she'd get. It's heartbreaking. For Barbara, however, her new skill gave her a way to cope with what she was experiencing. She was a natural writer and she wrote about a lot of things, not just her memories. She wrote about short stories and poetry, but she also wrote about the higher power, reincarnation, where we come from and where we are going. At the age of 10, Barbara and her family went on an extensive overseas trip to see all of the major cities of Europe. They went to London, Paris, Amsterdam and Berlin. Eventually during the trip they reached Amsterdam, checked into the motel they had booked. Barbara's parents were keen to sightsee and they decided they wanted to see Anna Frank's house as one of the popular tourist attractions. Her father said let's do Anna Frank's house first, I'll call for a cab. Barbara said to her father, we don't need to take a cab, we're not far away. She knew exactly where they were in Amsterdam, even though she'd never been there before in this life. He queried her and said, how can you know that? You've never been here. Barbara said, let me show you the way. I know, it's, it's not far. Her parents decided to humour the little girl and they set off walking to the house. Unerringly, Barbara took them through the winding streets directly to the house. The block before they arrived, Barbara said to them, around the next corner we'll be there. They turned into the street and as she had said, there was the house. Her parents were dumbfounded but they didn't say much about it at the time. As they approached the house, Barbara noticed that the steps outside the house were different and had been changed. 
she said to her parents, Strange, they've changed those steps. They brought their tickets and as Barbara stepped into the house, she said she was swamped with the most horrifying feeling she's ever had. She was suddenly overwhelmed with the memories of her dreams and her own recognition of the house. She recognised everything from when she was a little girl called Anna. She took her mother's hand and her mother realised how cold and sweaty it was. She looked down at her daughter, realising she was distressed and asked her, don't you want to go in here? Barbara answered that she did, but she just wanted to hold her mother's hand. They walked up the stairs and reached the room where Anna Frank had lived. Barbara remembers how torn she felt. She was terrified, but she was also drawn to the house, wanting to see if she had remembered it right and had the right memories that fitted the actual location. She looked at one of the walls and saw that it was covered in pictures from newspapers and magazines of movie stars and singers that Anna had cut out and stuck on the walls. Barbara remembered being surprised and happy that the pictures were still there and she said to her mother, look, the pictures are still there. For the first time, she felt a comforting feeling of coming home. Her mother said, what pictures? When Barbara turned back to the wall to point them out, there were no pictures on the wall. Her mother said, what do you mean about pictures? What, what are you talking about? Barbara said, I saw those pictures on the wall and I know they have been there. Her mother walked over to one of the guides that cared for the property and asked them if there had ever been any pictures on the wall. He replied that yes, there certainly had been and they'd been put there by Anna Frank but that they'd been taken down just a few weeks prior to protect them as people were stealing them and touching them and they'd all be destroyed if they remained in place. The museum was going to frame them behind glass to keep them from being destroyed. He told them that they would be back up again as soon as the work was finished. That was the moment that Barbara's mother realised that what the little girl had been describing all these years was not fantasy and that somehow something was happening that was bigger than she could understand. Her mother hugged her and told her that she finally understood and her daughter was not alone anymore. Barbara was completely overwhelmed and asked if they could leave as she could just not be there anymore. Her father wanted to stay to read all of the historical papers and articles that were on display, so they agreed that Barbara could wait outside for them. Barbara was crying as she walked down the stairs, almost overwhelmed with fear at what she was experiencing. As she walked down the stairs, she had a sudden image of a man in a green uniform coming up behind her and hitting her with his arm. She put up an arm to protect herself and fell down the steps and landed on the floor. When she looked up, she was surrounded by tourists and the man in the green uniform was gone, but Barbara says she saw him and he was as real as any of the tourists in the house that day. As traumatic as the experience of visiting the house was for Barbara, the one consolation was that her mother finally accepted the fact that her daughter had once been Anna Frank and from that day on became quite spiritual herself. Her father remained unaccepting. In Barbara's words, he became almost annoyed that she'd proven his own beliefs wrong and he didn't want to be proven wrong. So he continued to deny what had happened and to stick to the beliefs of his Christian faith. He would admit that somehow she had been there one way or another before and that was how she knew how to get to the house and could recognise the changed steps and be correct about the missing pictures. But he would continue to deny that she was Anna Frank. He simply refused to admit that that was a possibility and he refused to discuss it again. Barbara was fine with that. She didn't need to prove it to her father. 
She hoped that having been to the house and being able to prove to herself, and as a side bonus her mother, that she might finally be able to get some closure. She was so battered by the experience that she really didn't want to talk about it anymore or even really consider it. She hoped she'd be able to put it behind her and move on. One day, when Barbara was around 11 years old, a friend of the family came over and saw some of Barbara's writings. He gathered them up and asked her parents if he could take it to a publisher. They had long ago given up on Barbara's writings and discounted it as just more of her over-fertile imagination. The friend would come around and ask her for some more writing and then some more, and before she knew it, with no real planning, her first book was published when she was 12 years old. This book was called Man on Earth. There was a lot of publicity around the book due to her young age, but there was still nothing in the book about Barbara being Anna Frank, as Barbara was still repressing her need to talk about it due to the reactions it caused. By the time her book came out, she also felt awkward about speaking about it for another reason. She remembered the first time she heard her teacher speaking about Anna Frank and feeling confused about it. She remembered feeling, why is she talking about Anna Frank when I am Anna Frank and I'm sitting right here? Her teacher spoke about Anna Frank and her diary and of course about her internment and death in Bergen-Belsen and Barbara suddenly made the connection that Anna Frank was actually a very famous person. Barbara was shocked and realised that it was not very smart to go around saying she was Anna Frank. On making that realisation, Barbara was even more unwilling to discuss her memories and she blocked them out as much as she could. So she continued on writing about spirituality and stories as a way of letting it all out, but she still didn't write about being Anna Frank. When she was around 15 years of age, her memories slowly started to fade away and she was truly relieved. She felt like she was getting a new life. She enjoyed exploring her life right here and now. She was able to become Barbara and just do normal teenage things, like riding horses, making friends, writing books, and the memories receded. By the time she was 16 or 17, she'd pretty much lost all of the memories she'd had. She still remembered she had the memories, but she couldn't recall them anymore. The memories left her with a fear of people in uniform and the simple act of being pulled over by a police officer for a license check was terrifying. She said it was so bad that she almost had a flight or fight reaction and had to fight down the desire to run. At 18 she got married and had a son by 19. Her marriage was very short-lived and she raised her son alone with the help of her mother. At 23, she realised she couldn't make a living out of writing books as she didn't make enough to support her son and herself. She felt she was being irresponsible to rely on people wanting to buy what she wrote. She decided she needed a proper profession and recognised that she needed to break her crippling fear of uniforms. So she came up with the rather left-field solution of becoming a mounted police officer. She reasoned that maybe if she herself put on the uniform, it would lose its fear and power over her and she could accept that uniforms did not mean a death squad. As she was born in Stockholm, she went to the Swedish Police Academy and after three years of study, joined the Mounted Police Force in Gothenburg, Sweden. She worked as a police officer responsible for training the horses and she held that position for 15 years. Barbara would often wonder why she remembered her past life and nobody else did. It left her with a feeling of unfairness and that she missed out on a lot in her early life because it made her childhood so difficult. 
and it led to her writing her books, which meant that rather than being a normal child, she was giving book readings, giving interviews and discussing spirituality with priests and religious people. She felt she was not really allowed to be a child. Her time in the police force ended up giving her the answer why. While she was in the police force, there was a man working there that instilled a feeling of unease and fear in Barbara. If he spoke to her, she felt panic and extreme distrust of him. Over time, things escalated and this man, together with another person, started a form of persecution against Barbara. The situation became worse and she realised that she was once again living in a similar persecution that she'd experienced in the memories of Anna Frank. The bullying triggered the memories to resurface once more. Her nightmares returned and she had no relief anywhere, being bullied during the day and then having the nightmares at night. She bore it for a year and ended up so despairing she was contemplating suicide. One night she walked to the ocean and sat on the sand, asking the heavens, why was I given these memories? Why is this happening? She said that as she asked, she felt this strength infuse her that was almost like a light. She knew within herself that if she just stayed the distance, if she didn't let it break her, that she would receive her answer. That night she had another nightmare, but it also gave her the answer with regard to what was happening in this lifetime. She realised that a past life can affect this lifetime. She realised that the bullies in this lifetime had been in her past lifetime as well. The realisation gave her the strength to stand up to her bullies in this lifetime and to face them down. She also found a sense of total peace with her memories as she realised she'd retained the memories in order to help her understand why she was persecuted in this lifetime. She honestly feels they helped her to survive the experience and stopped her from taking the irrevocable act of committing suicide. The past and the present came together for one memorable occasion when Barbara met Anna Frank's one remaining relative, her cousin, Buddy Elias. Buddy found out through Barbara Carlin's publisher that she believed that she was the reincarnation of Anna Frank. Buddy didn't believe in reincarnation, but as the head of the Anna Frank Foundation, he was keen to meet this woman who was going around claiming to be Anna Frank. Her publicist simply told Barbara that there was a famous actor who wanted to meet her and had asked her to come to dinner at his house. Barbara wasn't aware as she walked up to the door that she was about to meet Anna Frank's cousin. The door opened, they both looked at each other and instantly both broke into tears and fell into each other's arms. They talked for two hours, and even though with his position of authority in the Anna Frank Foundation, his acceptance of Barbara could cause him some complications, he did acknowledge that yes, he did indeed believe that she had been Anna Frank when the press asked him his views about Barbara's claim. I think Barbara's case is one of the more compelling cases of reincarnation, and not because of the evidence. Barbara freely admits that she suppressed and eventually forgot a lot of the memories she had been born with. There are other cases with a lot more factual evidence. However, I find it compelling because she was so reluctant to speak about what she was experiencing. Also, when you watch the interview that she gave speaking about her experiences, the emotion is still so apparent. At the time Barbara gave her interview about her experiences, she was a woman in her mid-30s, and there are times when she speaks that you can feel the tears close to the surface in her voice and her expression, particularly when she speaks about her memories of the dream and of her parents' refusal to believe her. She's very calm and very quietly spoken. She isn't dramatic and doesn't embellish. 
She's not trying to pad her story out or draw you into buying her book, even though the interview was given at the time of her book being published. You have the feeling that she is quite simply imparting her life experiences and that her reason for doing it is to impart the message that there is always a way through, that things happen for a reason. I think Barbara's case is an important case as it demonstrates the need to keep an open mind when discussing reincarnation and also because it highlights the importance of listening to children when they describe these emotions. It is very clear from Barbara's account that her childhood was extremely painful, not only because she had extremely traumatic memories from a toddler of being seized by aggressive, brutal, frightening soldiers, but also because she was so alone and had no one to talk through what was happening to her while being told she was making it up. Barbara teaches us that we need to keep an open mind and a caring heart when moving through life, or we run the risk of becoming part of the problem by adding to the ripples of damage that people are experiencing. And I think one of the many important lessons 2020 has taught us is that we need to be more compassionate and more caring about the humanity and the planet around us. From listening to the cases of reincarnation I have encountered, the children clearly state that our incarnations are not limited by boundaries of gender, colour, sexuality, race, creed or religion. In this life you may be a white woman, in the next life you may be a black man, or any of the variations of theme that make us so unique as a species. The obvious lesson to learn from that interesting fact is that hating a person because they are different to you means you may end up becoming that which you hate. On that piece of deeply and possibly for some disturbing philosophy, I'll simply say thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or you can relate your own experiences from your own life, I would love to hear about it. And I can be reached by email on reincarnationplr at gmail.com or through my website reincarnationplr.com. If you'd like to keep up to date on my latest podcast posts, you can find me on Facebook under Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited or on Twitter and Instagram under Reincarnation PLR. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. Mm -hmm.